And to bring up something that I'd asked previously, if you believe that you knew who killed Tupac, if your colleagues, more than one, how many would you say, six, five total? Well, I can just say myself and three that I know for absolute certainty. If they believed it as well, perhaps a jury of 12 would have believed what you all knew as well. Well, first of all, for me to get up on the stand and testify to stuff, I have to testify to facts. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. Twenty-five years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing the gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. Twenty-five years later, once again, an exclusive. I interview now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've heard any of Tupac's songs, you've heard some of the language lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast. Enough said. Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Episode 6. Solved? Unsolved. Unprosecutable. There were hundreds of trips to more than 40 states and half a dozen countries beyond America. I was quite the traveler before I worked for a primetime crime show and after. But those numbers reflect my frequent travel for assignments for that show in particular. I developed a morning routine. I would get up at least a couple of hours before going to the first interview of the day. Normally, I would watch C-SPAN because I do like my news straight up. No chaser. Most often, I ordered an omelet and hash browns. If I trusted the joint not to make it mushy, I might switch that out to oatmeal. During mealtime, I often went over my questions and made phone calls to confirm appointments. After breakfast, I would become my own glam squad. I got my hair did. I put my makeup and wardrobe together. Even if I'd come to town with a photographer and a sound engineer, I would do all of this solo. I treasured my time alone. Then there was that one morning when I woke up and I was out of the groove. I had no idea where I was. And note, none of my daily travel routines included drinking or taking drugs. I've never done either, ever. But there I was. The miles had been so frequent that I didn't immediately know where I was. Turns out it was Fargo, North Dakota, by the way. At that moment, I knew my best future life would not include so much travel. After covering hundreds, make that thousands of stories over the years around the world, my memory has become slippery. In fact, 
I saw a couple of my stories that I'd produced as a local TV news reporter. I saw myself talking, doing stand-ups, and I could not remember a thing about the stories. One was in front of a high school, the other aboard a ship. And I recalled nothing. Of course, I do remember many of my stories over the years. The hundreds I reported on before producing stories about Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, and hundreds after. But how is it that I remember not only about reporting about Tupac, but about what surrounded producing the story? I remember first hearing one of his songs. That I don't even understand. But I do remember vividly. Even with all those memories, I did have to spend months researching all that's happened since I covered the murder of Tupac Shakur. And it turns out there has been quite a bit. I went into my research firm in the knowledge that the murders of Tupac and Biggie had not been solved, or I would have heard about it, right? Well, go to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department's website and look under cold cases. You won't find Tupac's case listed. But yet, no one's ever been arrested for the case. No one has faced charges in court. No one has been charged. Period. Yet, there have been countless confessions. Everyone from a caller in a phone booth claiming to be P. Diddy to someone who places himself in the white Cadillac with the usual suspect, Orlando Anderson. There's a lot more to this story. Quite a bit more. Going into this episode, I'd like to reestablish a few things. First of all, you have not been on this case, the Tupac Shakur murder investigation, for a number of years. Correct. Since you were off the case, you have not had access to the case files. Correct. And since you were off the case, you really haven't followed in the news what's going on. Is that correct? Well, that's absolutely correct. And I will also say, in the lead-up to doing this podcast... From time to time in our exchanges, I would ask you, I would ask the veracity of some information that I saw online, ask you to confirm, is this true or false? And in that way, I was making you aware of items regarding Tupac Shakur's death in the investigation. Yes. And I also want to reestablish the reason that I have wanted you to talk for this podcast is because you were one of the original investigators of Tupac Shakur's death. Correct. And certainly from that perspective, you have a lot of insights into a lot of things. And this episode is solved, unsolved, unprosecutable. And even though what I've just said, I still believe that you have valuable insights. And that's why I wanted you to do this podcast, and that's why we're going into this episode. But going into the episode, I just wanted to establish all of the above. Okay. In high school, I wanted to be an attorney. And my last year, I worked at the city attorney's office, and I went to court cases. And I remember coming home and telling my mother, I don't really want to be a lawyer because when you go to the courtroom, Everyone seems to be lying on all these different cases. So I'm not an attorney. 
I've done a lot of stories around the country where I've gone into courtrooms and covered stories. Even in France, I went in a courtroom for a story. But I'm not a lawyer, but reading through everything, even before I approached you about doing this podcast, it really seemed to me that you couldn't prosecute, it would be extraordinarily difficult to prosecute this case. I came to that understanding now 25 years later. You have come to that understanding sooner than that. Am I correct about that? Yeah, from when I was involved with it, you know, like you said, there was a lot of tips, a lot of informant information, but everything was hearsay. There were there was never a person who said they were there at the scene, the time of the shooting, that ever said anything absolute. They never positively identified a anybody in the car. They never positively identified needed information about the car. And there were never any reports or documents from outside of our agency that ever said that. Everything was secondhand information, informants or hearsay information. Now, when you say the car, you're talking about? The white Cadillac, which I believe that's what it was. I know in the beginning we had the white Cadillac, white Lincoln Town car. But yeah, the white Cadillac is pretty well a given. But you have had confessions? Oh, you've had all kinds of people say things and that's all well and good. Until you can corroborate it, it's another story. But when you were investigating the case, did you have people coming in and saying that they did it or calling? Nobody came in physically and said they did it. It was all phone calls where I'm not seeing them face to face. I have to base who they are on what they're telling me. So I've never been able to like check driver's licenses or anything like that. So it's, it's, that, I mean, that alone, okay. I could say Nancy Pelosi is a sexual predator. So what? You got to prove it. <laughs> That's the point. You need to prove these things. Now, you have investigated challenging cases in the past, and a name comes to mind, Ron Mortensen. And again, yeah. stop me if I get it wrong, for his birthday, instead of you know getting a cake or playing paintball with friends or simply grabbing beer, he went out and did a drive-by and actually killed somebody. And But wait, there's more. At the time, he was with the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. And Correct. his victim was a gang member. And wait, there's still more. He was out with somebody who was also with the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. So again, two police officers, one victim killed in a drive-by who's a gang member, and you investigated that case all the way to it being prosecuted. Yes. So a difficult case. Well, once we started or developed the suspect, I already knew it was just going to be a nightmare because it just the subject matter, and it and it was. You could just go by how the uh, press or the public opinion or whatever, and 
there were a lot of things said about that case that weren't factual, but you know, that just comes with the territory. You just have to deal with it. And, uh, you know, yeah, it went to court and a jury found Mortensen guilty. Uh, I'll just say there were probably some things that happened during the investigation. I wish it would have been dealt with in another way, but it, what's done is done. And you got to remember the police only arrest people for violations of the law. The DA is the one who decides if they're going to charge someone. Right. But you, that's a tough case to investigate. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And I, I can tell you from the beginning, you had, the department was divided because you had two policemen named and you had one side for one policeman and one side for the other. And that's in just, terms of guilt, in terms of guilt. And that's just the way it goes. You know, I can't, one, it's not my job to sway everybody in the department as far as what their opinions are. That's, you know, we went through it, you know, it's just, it's one of those deals and, uh, you know, nothing much else I can say about it. You can play it both ways in terms of somebody could say, well, if you could get a conviction on that, you could certainly get a conviction on a tough case like Tupac. You could also play it the way that if you are a detective who goes out there and gets a conviction against a fellow officer, I mean, you do your job, period, no matter who is the accused. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest difference between these two cases is, yeah, you had a gang member shot, but you also had gang members telling you what happened and trying to identify people where we had people, and I don't know that they were gang members, but you got people involved in the Tupac Shakur case that will tell you what happened, but they weren't even maybe identifying anybody. And in the Mortensen case, there were people that were, there were some decent witnesses in there. And you know what? They're gang members. They have some knowledge about different things, firearms. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of things that came out of that that you probably, well, the classic deal is, okay, you got a bunch of people supposed to be gang members in, quote, a gang neighborhood getting shot at, and no one had a gun to shoot back at them. I, I mean, that's a to me, it's a rarity. I mean, most of the time, someone's packing a gun in the crowd, and it didn't happen, so... Well, that was an astounding, that was a jaw-dropping case. When I was reading the news articles about it, what happened and some of the things that happened subsequently, my jaw dropped because apparently marauding was like a thing for this That was the person. information that came out of it. Yeah, that apparently this, well, and we've, we always say you don't get caught the first time you go out and do something. But in this particular case, apparently there were people saying that uh, the term marauding was used, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember right. That's 25 years ago, roughly. And uh, 
and that term was used. And it was just a few months after Tupac was killed that you were assigned this case, correct? Yeah, September of 96 would have been Tupac shooting and subsequent death. And the end of December of 96 is when this happened. So earlier in this podcast series, in episode two, we were talking about Tupac's autopsy. And one of the things you mentioned is that you would lock up the case files. Correct. In terms of prosecution, why is it important to keep the case file? I mean, why did you want to do it? Let's just reiterate why you wanted to keep it locked down at the time. I think there was probably more, well, there was media interest in other cases, but this one was more of a, I guess you would say national media. There were a lot of other, yeah, yeah, actually international. There were a lot of people probably outside of Las Vegas, you know, because every, everybody involved in this is just about from outside of Las Vegas. And uh, there was, at least from my point of view, I just thought there was concern that you don't know what people are going to do to try to get information. And then when that Polaroid thing came out, that just kind of put the icing on the cake. The Polaroid of the autopsy. But what is the nature of the concern? You say you don't want it to get into the media, but why don't you want to get it into the media? You know, it's like anything. Uh, People working the case don't want to reveal that much, you know, unless there's going to be a benefit to the investigation. If it's going to be productive, that's one thing. But Police aren't the tools for the media to, to get a great story. That's not what our job is. Uh, I know the old adage, the public has a right to know. I says, well, I'll dispute that. I says, it depends. And in some cases, there's information that, no, the public doesn't have a right to know. If, if they do, then I guess the old Area 51 story is still going to get beat up a while because they aren't getting a whole lot out of that. Well, I know it was a criticism at the time, even 25 years ago, when I did get an interview, there were certainly people, why did she get the interview, and why won't she do this other show too, and, you know, I've seen it written, you know, written subsequently, so there is a criticism that Las Vegas Metro didn't talk enough at the time. Well, and so what? That's their opinion. Uh, one, I'm not the one that does the normal interviews, but the point is, that's their opinion. So be it. I'm not here to change their opinion. I'm, I, I was there at the time to investigate a case and hopefully get enough to take someone to court on it. Well, again, looking at the media, I remember some celebrated cases in the past when prosecutors defense attorneys would make reference to any coverage, especially in tabloids. And so it seemed to me that they were saying, especially prosecutors, that they didn't want certain information. They didn't want witnesses to speak with tabloids because they thought that it would impact their case. Now, what are your thoughts about that? Well, how many cases have been tried in the media? I mean, how how many cases have there been where 
I guess they were a little loose on giving out information and the newspaper or TV or whatever, they just run with it and it just goes on and on and on. That could be detrimental to an investigation because what it does also is it probably opens the door for more people saying things. They hear something. You get you do get people that feel it's a big deal for them to be a witness or to give some information, whether it's real or not. It gets them out there publicly. And, you know, they, maybe they'll make a buck or two out of it. I don't know. But there's so, there's so many cases in this country where some schmoke gets tried in the media and it turns out it wasn't him. So, I mean, Richard Jewell is the guy that I always think of. That guy got crucified over in Atlanta. I think they made a movie out of it. I've never seen it. I think Clint Eastwood Clint actually Eastwood. made a movie out of it. You know, it's just, there's a classic example of some guy getting beat up that shouldn't, he suffered tremendously. So I, that's not my job. I'm not here to make, if I know who did it, it's not my job to try him in the media. It's my job to get enough to take him to court and put him to pr in prison. That's it. If the media wants to do their thing after the fact, that's, that's their business. And again, on the topic of the media, the Compton gang unit has been somewhat critical when it comes to the investigation of Las Vegas Metro. At the same time, they have stated that the case would be very difficult to solve because of all the books and movies and TV shows. Again, from your perspective, what impact do you think that has had on the case? Well, I think it's had a lot. I mean, just from the information I've kind of reviewed recently, you know, because I didn't keep up with all this, I'm kind of amazed at how much there is out there. Really, it kind of gave me a headache. And there are so many different stories. They aren't all consistent. I mean, there's some may have some similarities, but they aren't exact. And to me, okay, so now I have five different stories out there publicly. Well, if anybody knows anything, a good defense attorney, if he has a client that is, gets charged, he's going to dig all this stuff up. Because what's he got to do? Get reasonable doubt. He's got to get one juror to go, nope. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff being thrown out here. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying there's a lot of different versions. And in fact, some people have given more than one version themselves. So I would say a few have. Yeah. So which story is it you're supposed to go with now, since they're the ones telling the story? I, whatever. It's so it's their deal. I'm glad I'm not the one that's got to put it together now, because you know there are investigators assigned to this case, and if they had enough to file on it to the DA's office, they would have. So I'm, I'm thinking there's a lot of this stuff coming out that's probably not making their job any easier. And now our part of the story, we're going to get to 
Greg Kading, and I'm going to try to set the stage as best as I can. Okay. The Los Angeles Police Department, it's my understanding, was facing a lawsuit from Valletta Wallace, the mother of the notorious B.I.G. There was a Los Angeles police detective, Russell Poole, who I met and you met, who believed that crooked Los Angeles police officers were responsible for the notorious B.I.G.'s death. So Greg Kading was put in charge of a task force to investigate in 2006. He brought in Tim Brennan, who was with the gang unit of the Compton Police Department, along with some other folks, and they began investigating. When did you become aware, or did you ever know, prior to us talking about this podcast, about Greg Kading's investigation? If if it was prior to this podcast, it was not long before this podcast. I'm just trying to remember, because I've never watched a show, but since then, I've seen Greg Kading's been quite the figure on this. Uh, I've never met the man. I've never talked to him. Of course, if he started in 2006, he would have no re- well, he would have no reason to talk to me as the investigator on the case unless he wanted some information beforehand if he was interested in it. But I've never had any contact with him. He says he solved the murder of not only Biggie Smalls, but also Tupac. And uh, your initial reaction to that? I'm happy for him. That's all I can say is I'm happy for him. If, if he feels it's solved, does he mean solved as in able to prosecute it or solved as in being able to name somebody? That's, that's my question because as far as I know, Biggie's case hasn't been taken to court yet. And I'm not, I'm not involved in that deal. And there was a whole lot of cops involved in that deal. Well, let's stop right there. He says that Suge was incarcerated at the time. Suge Knight, head of Death Row Records, who was with Tupac the night that he passed away. In fact, I interviewed him really just, a, I interviewed Suge Knight in jail just a few days before Biggie did pass away. But retired Detective Kading says that Suge hired a hitman named Poochie to kill Biggie via one of Suge's girlfriends. And in the process of getting this information, apparently he used some trickery on Suge's girlfriend to say this and that. And in terms of that, that's not something that's illegal for detectives to use, to use a ruse like saying to somebody, you know, we have your clothing and we see blood on it, even if even if you really don't see blood on it. That's not uh, against what you, I mean, that's not wrong for you to do. You you do that, right? No, there's there's nothing wrong with the investigator lying to the person. Yeah, I was saying ul- Bruce, but yeah, basically ul- lying. Yeah, ultimately, your goal is to get the information needed to successfully, pro- the truthful information to successfully uh, prosecute someone. So yeah, that's there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what he did, that's what he did. 
what you're saying there, though, sounds different from what I've heard recently coming from him. So I don't know. Because who's Poochie? <laughs> well, this was for the murder of the notorious B.I.G. Oh, my okay. For this is B.I.G. Okay. Right. I got I'm just, you. I got as you. As a setup. Because initially, that's what he was assigned to do, to, to okay. get into that case. That's what his bosses said. All that's right. what we want. I'm sorry. And no, I understand. The, the ruse, from what I understood, was that he said that Pucci had given a confession before he was also killed. And they made up a document, you know, to look like Pucci had signed this confession and handed it to, according to retired detective Greg Kading, they handed it to the girlfriend. She starts reading it and crying and saying, yes, this is what happened. You know, she gave me the money okay. to do that. So again, a ruse, but something perfectly acceptable in the realm of investigating a case. Sure. Then with Tupac, retired detective Kading says that he went after one of, actually who would turn out to be the uncle of Orlando Anderson, okay. Keefe D, and we've spoken about him before. Mm-hmm. He was there that night in Las Vegas, the night Tupac was killed. He was there at the party at the Peterson Automotive Museum. So he does show up pretty consistently. Apparently, he grew up with Suge Knight. He knew him. So he's a familiar name. Sure. And Detective Kading said that they had a person who was selling drugs for Keefe, you know, part of that distribution. And they were able to get somebody to help them get the goods on him, so to speak, for drug trafficking. And in the process, they brought him in to talk about that case and basically offered or proffered him, you tell us what you know, and we'll reduce these charges. And what he knew, he said, was about the murder of Tupac Shakur. From my understanding, from what I've read and seen, they initially thought that he was involved with the Biggie murder. But once he got in and talked to them, he talked about Tupac Shakur. In the process, for him to spill all the beans, he was offered this thing called a proffer. Mm -hmm. What do you know about them in terms of how have you used them in your investigations or have you used them in your investigations? I've never had to use one to where we made a deal with the person we were looking at for doing the crime, the, the actual person that did it, or a co-conspirator or such. Uh, again, I've never cut a deal or gone to the DA per se to cut a deal on a murder. Uh, I can, I but can, you had that option. Yeah, and I can think of one time when I was in robbery, I went in with the defendant's, one of the defendant's lawyers to the judge, and because the judge just wanted to, well, I guess the defense attorney wanted to present something to the judge and ask me to say whatever. And I didn't say cut the deal. I just told him what, information we had that was beneficial to us. That was more of a the decision on the judge. So I don't think it's quite the same deal. Now, 
the the proffer or deal that I think you're talking about was with Keefe D and a drug charge in the California area. Correct. And he, from what I've heard and read, is that he confessed to being there for the murder of Tupac Shakur. So, he confessed to being inside that Cadillac right. with Orlando, his nephew, and two other people. And, well, that's all well and good for California, unless the Clark County District Attorney's Office was involved in that proffer and has nothing, no bearing on his deal involving the Las Vegas case. In fact, Keithy Dees basically confessed to being a co-conspirator to murder which means he could be charged with murder if it can be substantiated. Uh, from what I remember, because that confession kind of raised some questions to me, and I'm not, you know, the confession may very well be good. But okay. why, why don't we first go over some of the beats in terms of the confession? Okay. Orlando is at the MGM Grand. Correct. We We've know established that. that before. A beat down with Tupac and Suge. Yes. According to Keefe D, they got together. And Keefe D has a couple of explanations. Or, well, Keefe D says that previously he had talked to Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, about putting a hit on Tupac and Suge okay. for a million dollars, something okay. that we've already talked about. Then after this beatdown, they decided to go and either one, get retribution, or two, get the million dollars, or both. They went to the 662 Club, according to Keefe. Then when they kind of had given up. They went to a liquor store, but when they were all but given up, they heard four, the car with the four young women yelling, Tupac, Tupac. They said, now's the time to do it. According to Keefe D, Orlando had to reach over one of the occupants of the car to kill Tupac, to shoot up the car, also wound Suge Knight. One thing I was because I had also heard Russell Poole, the detective from LAPD who had earlier investigated Biggie's case, what kind of a shot would he have to be to hit the way he did on that car, not being the closest to the target? Well, I mean... Do you believe that story, in other words? Uh, it's possible. I'm I'm not de denying that it can happen, and especially since you're talking about the back seat, so you don't have like a console in between or anything like that. Keep in mind the number of shots fired. Well, what three of them hit Tupac Shakur, and there's a fragment of something that hit Suge Knight. So out of thirteen or fourteen shots. We'll be nice and say there were four that came in contact with a human being. Though I, I think the wound that Suge got was from fragmentation of some sort. You look at the car, well, they start from like the 
right rear door and work their way up, so to speak, to the right front passenger door. You've got the windows, so it's not all there. There's a little bit of movement on this thing. Yeah, he could do it. My understanding, uh, the guy next to Orlando was the DeAndre Smith, which I know who DeAndre Smith is. He was kind of a big dude. So that's a big guy to reach across and get out the window and, and do what he did. Again, I'm not saying that's impossible. Had you heard that story? I've heard that story, yes. Previously, when you were on the investigation, had you heard those four names or the, the four people that Keefe D identified as being in the car? T. Brown was the other one. Had you heard any of that specifically? I've heard that story before the Kading thing came out. Uh, again, it was hearsay story, but it was still a story. And then the question about T. Brown or Terrence Brown being the driver, well, there was different people put in that position too. So it just depends on which story you want to buy into. Uh, as far as Keefe D seemed to be a common denominator in this car, along with Orlando Anderson, and for the most part, DeAndre Smith. It was the driver that always seemed to have some variations. Uh, what I'd never heard, well, first time I heard was the confession part of Keefe D saying, you know, actually putting himself in the car. I mean, that's huge as far as if you can substantiate it. He's a co-conspirator for murder. He can be prosecuted for that. And he hasn't made a deal with the Clark County District Attorney's Office for his confession. That'll be something they'll have to argue out if they ever can file on it. But the fact that he puts himself in the car, and it seems to me in one of his confessions, he actually gets himself holding the gun at one point. All right. And my understanding, he, Orlando tried to give the gun to Dre, and Dre said no. That's, that's and, Andre Smith. Okay, yeah. Okay. Right. I guess that's what he was known right. by. And from one account I've heard is that Keefe said, I'll do it. But, I mean, I don't know how he would have done it to the driver, but... Ultimately, according to Keefe D, Orlando did do it. Well, so just let me let me throw this little twist in it. And I'm not saying this happened. I'm just saying you have two witnesses that say the gunman shot out the driver's door window. Well, if it's not the driver, then who would that be? The front passenger. And you're talking about witnesses that you originally spoke to. Correct. So you got some witnesses saying the shooter's shooting out, got his arm out the driver's door window and some out the rear passenger window behind the driver. So again, now you've got the question, well, did Keithy D actually do the shooting and he's telling the story to take the heat off of him? I don't know. It's ironic. I think if his statement originally was in 2006, if I'm just going by, you're saying Kading was involved in the case in 06? From 2006 to 2009, 
I do not know the year of Keefe D's confession, but I'm going to suspect it's closer to 2009, if not 2009. Okay. Well, we know because not long after. We know Orlando Anderson was killed in '98. DeAndre Smith died in like '04 or so. He had some health or issues. '03, '04. Now Terrence Brown, I think, got killed later, more like 2014, 2015. So. In a shootout. I'm I'm guessing that Keefe D's statement is being made while Terrence Brown is still alive. So it, it's awful convenient that he's making a confession where the guy he's accusing of isn't around to counter it, which and I'm not saying it didn't happen that way. I'm just I'm just throwing questions out because again, these are questions that a defense attorney are gonna bring up. That's all I'm saying. You can have all of these confessions, but can you substantiate it with eyewitness accounts or ex extremely good physical evidence that's going to put you there? I want to ask you about other aspects of the confession to get your take as well. One is that Keefe says that they left the Cadillac after the shooting in the parking lot of the carriage house. And they say that they actually watched the ambulance go by with Tupac. I can't deny that. I mean, could it be, is it possible? Sure, I guess it's possible. I, you know, there's no way I'm going to dispute that. So. Also, Keefe D says, and I made something of a reference to it earlier, that Tupac may, I mean, I've heard a couple of things that when they came side by side, that Tupac reached for a gun or looked as if he was reaching for a gun. Well, then Did he, you ever see any evidence that Tupac had a gun? No, there was nothing that night that indicated that. In fact, as it later became uh, came out through Frank Alexander, Tupac's bodyguard, that they were told not to have any guns by Suge Knight and Reggie Wright Jr. Now there's right to the bodyguards. Right, so there's a dispute there. Uh, you know, there was never anything to indicate Suge Knight was always carrying a gun. I mean, why do you have all these bodyguards then if you're going to carry a gun? Uh, I realized Suge Knight's a big dude, so he could hide it. But, you know, that was a hot night. They were wearing clothing that was, well, Tupac Shakur was wearing a tank top, so it's going to be hard enough to conceal anything. But there was never anything to indicate that Shakur or Knight tried to shoot at them. Because there's also a version that there was crossfire between Orlando and Tupac. Yeah, well, in that... Whoever made that statement, you know, that's their statement. There's no physical evidence of such a thing. There were no witnesses at the scene that said such a thing. So, you know, I'm just going by what I was told by people. And if, if that's a fact, there was no evidence of it. And I'm going to bring this topic up again, and we have discussed it before, and that is... Did anybody chase down the white Cadillac? 
And again, according to retired detective, LAP detective Greg Kading, he said, I've seen in, on more than one occasion that it did happen. And he backs it up with a police document that it happened. Okay. So in the past, when we've been talking, you've said you never found any evidence of that. No one ever said that that night. Uh, I've heard that story. You know, the girls, the four young ladies that I interviewed there that night, they made a comment when they fled after all the shots were fired that they saw the white car come up behind them. And I'm pretty sure, you know, and documents that show it, that one of them even mentioned that the front passenger of the Cadillac or the white car even leaned out the window with a gun. I don't remember anything about someone chasing them. I mean, it was never said that way. And the document you're talking about that was shown to me, if it's the same one, it, it was a field interview. It was one of our field interview cards from what I saw. Wouldn't that have been done when you were on the case? Well, I would have thought so. Now, just to explain, a field interview card, like a three-by-five card, traditionally we use those when you stop someone to talk about something, you get their information and put some details on it. Now, if it's the same thing I saw that has been presented, and I saw the front and back, it's definitely one of our cards. Uh, Not your handwriting. No, my, my handwriting isn't on there. And what's interesting to me is there's at least the handwriting of three different people on there. I wanted to get a little further into the confession. Some things may be not important in terms of evidence, but just to get your feedback. Apparently, they poured out liquor, which is a custom for people who die. Actually, it's a custom that started in Africa. But apparently, Keefe D and the other occupants of the car, including Orlando, there's a report that they poured out some liquor for Tupac. They left the next day from Las Vegas, and they left a gun stashed Again, this is according to a combination of what Greg Kading has said and what Keefe D has said. They left a gun stashed on the front tire of the Cadillac. And then they left, and apparently they repainted the car, which was a rental, which also, that's baffling to me. Have you ever heard any of the above? Well, first, it's the repainting the cars. I don't recall ever hearing that, but that seems unusual. Why would you repaint a rental car? It's not your car. I mean, the first thing that sh the rental car company should be asking is, why is the car a different color than what we rented it to you for? Then the question is, why did they repaint it? I guess because a white, because from white what Cadillac I, was hot. Well, yeah, but from what I understood from, from his confession, and I'm not... I don't know it verbatim, and I'm only piecemealing it, but uh, yeah, a white Cadillac, 
uh, I learned there were a whole lot of white Cadillacs, so I don't understand why they had to paint it. Uh, could they set the gun up on under a wheel? Well, sure. I've seen that happen before throughout my time. Why? I, I, I never heard of it before. Oh, yeah. I've had cases when I was working, even in uniform, we'd be in on a deal. There'd be a shots fired call or something like that in the neighborhood. We'd pull up and we'd see a bunch of people there. Well, that's one of the things we used to do is walk around and look at cars because... What an easy place to set a gun or a pistol is, on, is on the top of the wheel because think about it. Normally, you can't see down there just walking around. You have to kind of look. And yeah, we used to do that all the time just to see. all right, someone says there's some shooting and it's a very high probability that it was. Nobody's got a gun on them. Now, they could have put it somewhere else. I mean, there's obviously the, the difference in time from the call to us arriving. Yeah, we've looked in for stuff like that. That's not an unusual tactic. I had never heard of the practice before, but it certainly would seem that if you have a gun that has been used to kill maybe the biggest rapper in the country at the moment, you'd leave it on a wheel? I don't know. Nearby the shooting scene? Like I said, I haven't read the whole confession, the story, or listened to all the stories completely. From what I've gathered, it wasn't necessarily left there. In fact, I thought the gun was removed and taken with them somewhere along with the car. It was taken later. Yeah. I, I understand when they took the, the car, yes, it, yeah, it was removed. Yeah, but so, I'm saying to even do it for a minute. Oh, well, I can see that happening. You're talking about... Something that just happened, people being shot at, you know, they shot someone. They don't want to get caught with it if by chance they do get stopped. Uh, yeah, I could see that happening. No, I don't think that's an unusual thing. Well, another thing that Keefe D says is that once he got back to Compton, that he was followed by Reggie Wright Sr., who was a lieutenant with the Compton Police Department, and he stopped and, and allegedly, according to Keefe D., Lieutenant Wright said, don't you touch my son, Reggie Jr., who was security for death row. <laughs> the meaning being that after Tupac was shot, he, the father was concerned that something might happen to the son. Had you ever heard that story? No, I've never heard that story, and it's interesting because uh, I had the opportunity to talk with Reggie Wright Sr. when we were in Compton, and he never shared that information. I met Reggie Wright Sr. as well, but not in that time frame. The other question, as I said, he was always very affable. And Reggie has confirmed that account, Reggie Wright Jr. Keefe also felt that the Compton PD was inclined to say that the Southside Crips were responsible for everything because of his perception that the Compton PD was not as not fair to Compton Crips versus the Bloods because 
Reggie Wright Jr. was working for someone affiliated with the blood. Well, no one's Had ever. You... Yeah, no one's ever told me that. Uh, you know, no one from Compton's ever said that. I haven't heard that story. I. You didn't have that feeling. No, I, you were... I. I didn't get it. At least from when I say Compton, I'm talking about Tim Brennan and his partner and such. There was nothing they ever did that I raised questions about. Now, Reggie Wright Sr., maybe there's some questions. And obviously, once we learned the relation between him and Reggie Wright Jr., yeah, there was a lot of questions. But yeah, that that information was never shared by uh, Compton. And no one ever shared that. Well, TPD never shared it and uh, or any other member of the were any of your tips did any family members and there's been a specific family member who's been named but I don't want to name her or him but did you ever get tips from members of Orlando's family not you know Keefe D this has happened so many years later but while you were investigating the case did you ever hear from anybody from Orlando's family regarding saying, you know, Orlando's talking, bragging about it. Orlando did it. Again, did you hear that from his family? I don't remember anything from any family member. I know the Compton affidavit had a lot of hearsay information from informants. Right, this is a specific family yeah, member. Yeah, no, I, I don't recall any conversation with a family member. Okay. When were you aware that all these that a tv show we talked about when were you aware first aware of greg kading when were you first aware that a tv show had solved the case there was a tv show on a and e when we started when oh the a and e thing yeah gosh it's been over well it would have been before that show aired I just remember I got an email from a person. I can't even tell you who the person was. I think it was a woman saying they wanted to, you know, it blew sunshine up my butt, how important it was to talk to me about this or that, about the case. And I never answered the email. But it wasn't long after that, I got a phone call from Chris Carroll, who was a... Uh, at the time he called, well, I think he was retired then, but he'd got he'd retired as a lieutenant. I think he was a one of the bike sergeants out at the night of the shooting. And I just remember Chris calling that somebody from this outfit, and I think it was I don't know if he said A and E, but someone wanted to talk to me. We're going we're willing to fly me out to Vegas to do an interview and all that stuff. And I told him, I says. Chris, what did they ask you to do? He says, get you their, give you their phone number. I says, so give me the phone number. He gave me the phone number. I says, okay, you've done your duty. Thanks a lot. We didn't, we didn't really talk about anything else. You know, we may have talked a little bit, but we didn't talk about the case. And that was the last I heard of it. And then since we've started this, I've seen some of the clips or whatever from that show. They they say that they solved the case as well. well but before I'm happy for them. 
before we delve too much into that, one thing that was striking to me about Kifi, and he does talk about this family member who apparently was a tipster saying that Orlando Anderson killed Tupac Shakur. He said that if he wanted to find out who was talking about him in terms of a confidential informant or anybody, what they use their names or whatever, he would file through a FOIA, a Freedom of Inf- using the Freedom of Information Act to find out who was talking about him. And that leaves me to this whole issue of witness statements, police documents, going public for murders that are ostensibly unsolved. What is, what's the normal procedure regarding, you, you locked up your case files, what's the normal procedure regarding case files of existing cases? Well, the, if it's still an open case, they're going to maintain the case file there at the office. Now, keep in mind, any, any original document that you do, you're supposed to submit it to records, police records, because it's technically not an official document until they receive it and document that they've received it. Uh, there was a time, and this is back when I was working, that stuff wasn't freely released to the media or the public reports and such. But my understanding is that now some things have come out that I guess the courts ordered that they release it or something like that. So, but yes, I, I've heard that as well. And in, in the run-up to doing this podcast, I've tried to get some of those documents and nobody was even called me back. But <laughs> I'm I'm not going to give up. You probably so, aren't a big enough thorn in their side yet. So, no, well, maybe maybe my thorn will grow. <laughs> this was a quote that I got from a book, and I'll, I'll identify the book in just a moment. Whatever I see or hear of a confidential nature or that is confided to me in a, an official capacity will be kept secret unless revelation is necessary in the performance of my duty. That was said by Greg Kading in a book that he has written. And he says it's part of the law enforcement code of ethics. He also made the decision to keep Las Vegas Metro Police out of the loop during his investigation for LAPD. He says as not to compromise Keefe. But what is the deal in terms of law enforcement and access to records, to case files, to murder books? Well, law enforcement agencies have requested documents from other agencies before. If they have a rapport with the actual investigators, they can, you know, sometimes that's the easier way to get it. Uh, since I, I didn't know Greg Kading, if that's what he said and that's what he did. It's a shame that he did that to the investigators assigned to the case in Las Vegas. 
to not want to share. To, to not want to share. I don't know why he didn't want to share, but he since, said because he didn't want to compromise the confession from Keefe D. Well, I thought the confession was public. It's subsequently become public. Oh, okay, I get you. So it wasn't public at the time he did this. Correct. And he didn't want that confession to be released to Las Vegas because, well, I don't know. I can't say what he was thinking. But the first thing I'm thinking as an investigator is, well, that confession would have been important because at least that would be something to play with. I definitely have... If I were working a case, I'd be wanting to throw some other questions out to him. But if law enforcement is concealing this person from other law enforcement, yeah, there's a question about that, but it's not unusual. I mean, it's normally the the feds were notorious for doing that on some things, but that's a federal investigation. I'm not going to get into all that, but it's a shame that he did that. Uh, but as far as getting documents, you mentioned the freedom of information. I can tell you from personal knowledge, freedom of information, you may get reports, but they'll probably be heavily redacted depending on what is in there because they aren't going to just throw that out either. And you know what Keefe D says? I'm a smart man. I can figure out redacted documents. Well, yeah, especially if you're involved in it. Because you can read the story and fill in the blanks because you were actually there. So absolutely, I I, I get that. But if you weren't there and had no previous knowledge of it, it would, you know, there would be some questions, you know. So that's the wonder. Well, Freedom of Information has been around. They've been releasing so much on that, but it's usually other cases. So, and Greg Kading has said that the reason he has released because you know certainly, and he's showed on various platforms, he's showed that he has all these police files on ones that you reports that you would have documented reports coming out of LAPD, and the, he says the reason he's doing it is he wants to bring closure to the family. Whose family? The families. The families of Tupac Shakur and the family of Biggie Smalls. Uh, well, does Tupac have a brother still alive? Is that it? Yes. Okay, so it would be closure for him because mom's dead. Correct. Uh, I guess it's... A, what does closure mean to you? I guess that's what it comes down to. Does that mean just knowing who did it or seeing that person prosecuted or or what i you know closure can be very subjective depending on the people like a lot of it's up to the person i will surmise having not talked with him directly is that he's saying by in his mind solving these cases bringing out this information from the case files he that's closure Okay, well, if that's what he believes, that's what he believes. I'm not going to dispute him on that. Uh, I don't know how it helps as far as the the case, as far as closing it, as in stating with beyond a reasonable doubt that the person did it. But 
you know, that's that's his view. Uh, I'm sure he's gotten a few projects out of it. From the things I've seen, he's had a, a book or a movie or something and done a tour overseas. And I, well, I can see a movie coming out of some of it just from the things I've seen. I says, I don't, I don't know. He's done a documentary, a book, and a TV series. Well, good for him. He's profiting from it, so so be it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be critical of him for wanting to make a buck out of it, but uh, I don't know where the benefit is for the the case investigation itself. It may be beneficial for Tupac's brother. I don't know if it's if it's factual. Is it beneficial to the prosecution? Because neither case, neither Tupac nor Biggie's cases have been prosecuted to date. No, no. I mean, to have all the information come out on a case publicly is not going to be beneficial for a a prosecution if it can be prosecuted. Now, and it may be Greg Kading feels that there's no way it's going to be prosecuted. I don't know. I've not heard what he had to say. Now, what he has had to say is that he solved the cases of the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac. Russell Poole says he solved the case of the notorious B.I.G. There are a lot of armchair detectives out there who believe that they also know who killed Tupac and they know who killed the notorious B.I.G. What say you? Well, before I do that, my first question is, does Russell Poole's person and Greg Kading's person one and the same as far as who killed Biggie? Russell Poole believes the death of the notorious B.I.G. was caused by crooked LAPD cops. Okay. Greg Kading does not believe that. In fact, he was brought in by you know, higher-ups within LAPD after the mother of the notorious B.I.G. filed a lawsuit with the belief that bad cops were responsible for her son's death. Okay. So they got two different... They're, they're going two different directions as far as how it happened. All right. And Russell Poole subsequently has passed away. Correct. Uh, as far as sol- well, you said solving the case. I'm, I'm forget. I'm sorry. Solving the case. I guess again, the word solving uh, is a subjective term. Do you mean solve it as in being able to name the person? Just naming the person or to be able to name the person knowing that you can file on them to close the, you know, to at least attempt to prosecute them. Because I can think of a big LA case that's, I'm assuming it's solved. Guy got acquitted of it, but uh, yeah, I've known, or at least I feel that I have more than enough information to say who did shoot Tupac Shakur. I mean, 
again, it's all circumstantial and hearsay. There's no hard physical evidence because no one's ever done it. But I've been satisfied for quite a while that I know who did it. It's just, it's not enough to submit it to the DA's office. So I'm not going to throw his name out. So. Satisfied for how long? Oh gosh, it would have been summer of 97. It was just probably a little bit before the one year anniversary. There was, there was more than enough to satisfy me as to who did it. But again, I've got cases that I'm convinced who did it, but we're, we were never able to prosecute it because we didn't have that just bit of information to push it over the top that you can submit it to the DA's office. I mean, you know as an investigator what the DA's going to do most of the time. And if you submit a case that's strictly hearsay, strictly circumstantial with no hard physical evidence, you already know what they're going to tell you. I've had cases I've submitted to the DA's office that I thought we had a lot of good hard evidence and they got slapped back at us. We had a lot more evidence than this case ever had. And they slapped it back at us. So, but yeah, I, I'm, I'll say I'm a hundred percent sure I know who did it. You know, I probably, I probably told you 95 to 99%, but yeah, if, if there was enough to push it over and I don't, like I said, I don't know what they've got today, but uh, to me, if they've got more information to push it over the top, they would have submitted it, but it hasn't been done. This is a revelation for one of the original investigators of the Tupac Shakur murder to say, I know who did it. Well, I know I you're doing this podcast because I asked you to do it. Why have you never said this before? Because it's not productive. It's not productive for the case. In my mind, I mean, look at the nonsense that's been thrown out over the years. Well, I didn't need to say anything about anybody because there's enough mud thrown in this dog pile. Uh, if I were to name who in my investigative mind did it, who knows how this thing would have gone. But I don't think there would have been anything productive to come out of it. And I've got other murder cases that I know who did it, and I've never named them. Why should this one be any different? Just because it's Tupac Shakur, I says, I guess if I wanted to be uh, notorious or whatever, I could have, but that's not what this was about. The notorious B-R-E-N-T. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so <laughs> you believe that you know who killed Tupac Shakur definitively based on what? Well, based on everything we got while I was in there. So from 96 to 2001, there, there's been a lot of information. But again, but, I have to emphasize, it's hearsay information. 
but there's been a lot of consistency in some things. There's been some inconsistency in other things. Unfortunately, there's, after seeing all this stuff that's happened since I left, there's a bunch of stuff people have thrown in the pile that certainly wouldn't make it easier to prosecute that person. Okay, I, I want to really get more into your mindset. You say you don't want to say who you believed killed Tupac Shakur. Correct. You are convinced you know who killed Tupac Shakur. You came to this conclusion less than a year after you started the investigation. So would this be based on interviews? documentation it's based on interviews documentation uh nothing based on news reports or tv because those aren't those aren't viable sources they're at least not to me for an investigation it would be all based on interviews uh granted no one in the interviews specifically said a name or identified anybody in a photo lineup. Uh, but there's a lot of things that happened during the investigation where a lot of things were said. And I have to give some credit to other law enforcement because what, you know, there was some information that came out. It was, to me, it was very believable information. The problem is, a lot of it was hearsay or informant information, which an informant information is hearsay, unless that informant's going to be willing to go testify. So Compton PD played Compton, a role in Compton, you coming to a conclusion? Compton PD helped. You know, no matter what they say today, I've seen some of the crap they've kind of said since, but whatever their reason is, that's their business. Uh, crap about the investigation. Yeah, I mean, if, if I want to throw crap, then what about your investigation? Seems to me they had two or three murders on Orlando Anderson. And there's a guy whose name has obviously been thrown up and down for a while. And they never prosecuted him for it. Hypothetically, if Orlando Anderson is the murderer, wouldn't it have been swell if they could have put him in prison for murder? September 7th, 1996, wouldn't have happened. Did you get help from LAPD in coming to this conclusion? I don't remember anything specific from LAPD. Because LAPD, I'm trying to think of what from their biggie shooting. I can't remember anything really valuable coming from the Biggie shooting. I know, I don't remember if LAPD was responsible for finding guns or anything, but all the guns that ever were found possibly related to this were bumped because they were found ballistically. They didn't match. Uh, and I'm just talking about when I, when I was there. Now, obviously... Yeah, LA, there's apparently some things that have come out since I was in there that LAPD may have had that apparently they didn't want to share that might have been helpful. But 
So LAPD was not an agency that had an impact on your thinking. When you came to this conclusion that you knew who killed Tupac Shakur, did you document that conclusion anywhere or would that not be something that would be valuable to the investigation? There are somewhere in that case file two floppy disks. Okay. There would be a floppy disk that had Pretty sure the only thing I put on that one was phone tips or phone calls or stuff like that. And then there was another floppy disk that I had some other documentation on. Uh, and I can tell you that I wouldn't have named anybody in the document that would have been sent down to police records because I've already had that run in with another agency. You submit a piece of paper anywhere other than to yourself and maybe your partner saying something about someone, it's going to get out. I mean, look what happened in this case. Between the, the Polaroid photo, uh, our pin register, and all these other things. And even Compton's affidavit, you know, I know they sealed it, but I still wonder if they really meant for it to get released that quick. But you know about you know about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, as I said, I just was counting the days and thinking maybe the affidavit, the search warrant affidavit, is going to be un unsealed at this point. You know, it's it's expired, the seal. Right. So I just went out on a hunch. So that had an impact having that unsealed and having well, I, that the contents I'm, publicized. I, no, I'm pretty sure we have the information from that affidavit before it was publicly released. I would yeah. think so. Yeah. No, I I can't give you a day, but yeah. No, that that wasn't anything new that when it got released was new to me. Uh, and again, talking to Tim Brennan and his partner in Compton, and I think in Vegas, I think he was with two LA sheriff's deputies when he came, the more I think about it, Brennan. And you know, there was a lot of conversation, because like I said, I credit Tim Brennan with telling us that was Orlando Anderson in the videotape. I give him all the credit in the world. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take credit for something I didn't do. And uh, you know, this whole thing about identifying the person who did it. Well, I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade. If, if that's important for them to be the first person to, to uh, publicly say something, so be it. If they feel good, go for it. But just to go over what I asked, did you document your belief in the knowledge of who killed Tupac in any of the records that you would have left behind? In that second floppy disk. But you said you wouldn't have put a name on that floppy disk. No, I wouldn't have said, no, his name, person's name is in that. It's just that the, it wasn't a document per se that I sent to records. What does that mean? Because like us, when, Usually when you do a, a police report or an officer's report or the ID people do their little report that they do, 
The original should be should be sent to records. You make a copy for your case file and the original goes to records. Because then it makes it quote an official police document. So if another police agency was getting copies of your case file, would the floppy disk be part of that? I have no idea what they're getting. I don't know if they're getting it from police records, if they're getting it from the detective's case file. I would, I, would, normal... I would guess it's coming from police records because typically when you submit for documents, that's who you go through. Because I think yet, if I remember right back then, they had to pay so much a page for those documents. Uh, I believe I did. Even yeah. getting the search warrant now, affidavit, that's normal. When we did submittals to the district attorney's office, we made copies of our case file and sent it to them. So, and the idea but, was, why should we're working with them? Why are you going to make them pay for something? So, if I have 2,000 pages of documents and now we're submitting it, we're doing, you know, a submittal, I, that submittal, you have cover sheets that you have to fill out. And then you make copies of everything you have. And when I say it, everything you have, because you don't withhold information, you can get in trouble for that. It's part of discovery. Sure. And then With what we did, typically for us in homicide, is we hand-carried that down to the DA's office. Because there was a particular DA typically we talked to because they have a certain way of doing their trickle down to who's going to get assigned the case and all that. And then if they determine that there's enough evidence for that, they may issue, do the paperwork to get a arrest warrant or something like that. And then, or if search warrants are needed, you go, you go do that much more. And they may get the case and look at it and say, we'd like to have something else. And you go do it. I'm trying to drill down mm -hmm. to whether under normal circumstances, if there's such a thing, another local agency comes and says, we need your case file. We have a task force in our state looking to a crime and our interests converge. Would that floppy disk under normal, typical circumstances have been included in, let's say, LAPD requesting if your they case came to our office What's the and, norm? Yeah, if they came to our office, no. Because I can tell you any information that we shared with Compton, and we may have shared some information with LAPD when they came over, because I remember their investigators coming over, but it would have been pages they were reading in the case file. Because I can tell you that the phone tips, the phone, like the phone tips, that wasn't a piece of paper that was in the case file and they kept getting added. Because the wonderful world of computers these days, you can add things and go on and on. It isn't a matter of handwriting or typing now and having to keep add to it. So just like the list of phone tips, I don't think anybody else has ever got that. I don't know. I have no idea from from what I've heard of Greg Kading's uh, case file. 
he's got a lot of stuff. Now, it's kind of interesting how much stuff he's got from L.A. I don't know. Did he obtain that all through submitting for records, or is that stuff that he took with him when he left? I don't know. That's from La- Los Angeles done, or Las yeah, Vegas. From Los Angeles. Well, just I'm just talking about the Los Angeles reports. I have no idea what else he's got, but I never had copies of all my case files at home. Why would I do that? <laughs> I mean, I got enough stuff at the house. I don't need to be storing a bunch of other things, but maybe some people do that. That's that's their business. I'm I don't know that that's right. I don't know what their department rules are about people making copies of reports and keeping them at home. It would seem to me you aren't you shouldn't be, but maybe it's okay. I don't know. Apparently Russell Poole also did so. Yeah. He also copied You know, case, and I've heard different stories. Files. You always hear people say, well, so-and-so had sour grapes or whatever, because I understood that Russell Poole left under unfavorable circumstances from LAPD. I don't, I don't know the particulars. He resigned. Yeah. He resigned, and he was not happy with the way that the brass looked upon his investigation into okay. the Notorious and I, B.I.G.'s case. I have case. no idea what happened with that. That's between him and them. And I don't know what, that's an internal thing that had no bearing on us. So So to go full bore, it's possible that this floppy disk that you wrote up, and floppy disk, for people who don't know, is old school storage. Thumb drives. Yeah, that's before CDs and and thumb drives or whatever, flash drives, whatever they call them. Because I can remember we'd have some of those and used them in some case files. Because I understand today they store a lot of things on flash drives or whatever instead of having all the paper. I don't know. Okay, got you. So why, and you've said it in bits and pieces, you are certain you're an experienced homicide detective. You are certain you know who killed Tupac. Why not go at least even back channel to the district attorney's office, say we have this much, what do you think? Can we build a case? Well, from from my perspective, now I'm talking the first five years, it wasn't, it was circumstantial. It was hearsay. I could not walk in there with a person on tape stating so-and-so did this. I could not walk in there and say, and it had been in a, because there would be a signature. When we did photo lineups, there was a form we filled out too. And we'd have the person fill it out and there sign it and say, I identified, you'd have six photographs. I identified number five as the person who did this. I didn't have that. It was strictly hearsay. Well, I know that you don't walk into the district's office, the district attorney's office and say, here, I've got all this. I know he did it, but I don't have anybody that pointedly says that he did it. Has this knowledge frustrated you? I mean, once you determined it to your satisfaction, 
what what did you think? I mean, all I could think is, well, all I could think of because I was still in homicide and I was in there for another what four years maybe. All I could think of was all you can do is hope that somewhere over the course of time someone is going to have a, a conscience or loose lips or someone is going to say something to someone that you can follow up and pin it specifically. And unfortunately, it, it never did. And again, that's not the first case I've had that it's happened. I'm, I can't, like I said, I've, I've got a couple, I remember the first murder I worked, I had three suspects. And actually, I had a person that said who did it. But the problem was the person had some mental health issues. So guess what? That was an arguable point, And it was no one wanted to go on for that case just yet. So. So it wasn't so much you thinking this is frustrating, but this is just the way the system works. Well, the criminal justice system, you got to have. They don't say beyond a reasonable doubt. Just to say it in in court, that's that's in theory that's supposed to how that's supposed to be how it works. Now, in a civil case, you know, you may have been you may be able to go with whatever we have in that case or whatever's in that case file no and do something civilly, but criminally, I don't think so. How did the knowledge that you knew who killed Tupac Shakur impact? the investigation going forward, that it may, whatever bit of information that convinced you, did you go deeper into that or that witness, that physical, whatever physical evidence, surveillance or whatever, whatever convinced you that you knew who killed Tupac, how did you follow up on that? Well, there were, Times we were trying to show photo lineups, you know, sometimes people people would look, sometimes people wouldn't look. Because in a this photo This is a year line- in. This is well, a year yeah, in. I'm, I'm talking, yeah, before, yeah, before the year anniversary. So it's, I'm talking about events preceding that and even after it. I mean, if I could get someone to give me a name, one, then a I would name. Have, yeah, a name. Of a shooter. You're right. If someone would say, I saw so-and-so do this, well, first of all, I got to be able to say, yes, they were there. Okay, in case it was someone that we didn't know about at the time. But if they say, so-and-so told me that, I says, well, who's so-and-so, or the, who this person is? Well, most people aren't going to tell you that. It's all... You know, I heard this, you know, uh, a lot of it was how much money am I going to get for it, meaning reward money. So uh, we didn't have the bucks on the reward, so money talks, but it didn't, wasn't enough to make anybody talk officially on anything. And then you had re- $2,000 in reward money. Yeah. Yeah, and you know Frank Alexander, Tupac's bodyguard, was a big witness in that. He's in the car directly behind him. Uh, unfortunately, 
I really don't think Frank really could say anything other than what he said. Because as time went on, he had every he had every reason in the world to say something to lambast Death Row Records and and be a hero because and he did. You know, he was trying to sell books, videos, or whatever. And do you not think that saying this was the person that did it wouldn't have been a big selling point? I think he would have done that. So, yeah, that. And I know Frank took a lot of took a lot of heat to his grave, so to speak, because I know some death row people were probably not happy with him. I guess depending on who you see being uh, critiquing different events, some pe- a lot of people like Frank, but I know a few people didn't like him. Well, two things that struck me: one is that in reading his book. He seems extremely guilty. He seems extremely unhappy and feeling guilty that he was the one responsible for Tupac's death, that he didn't protect him, that, but what could he do? Could he go out and just shoot a gun on the street and not hurt somebody else? He seemed to me very troubled by what happened. The other thing that struck me about Frank Alexander is that he did an interview with a comedian and Afini Shakur heard it. And afterwards she called the comedian to ask, is there anything that Frank said that, I mean, she wanted to still investigate and still try to find out more about the case before he passed away. So she must've thought he knew something. You know, and people may have, I, to this day, do not believe it. I just, if if he did, and he had a chance to make some bucks out of this deal, because I know he was having a hard time. He was trying to make a living. And what you say you felt is the same feeling I had. Frank took it to heart that he held some responsibility for Tupac Shakur's death. He always talked about how, you know, especially when Shakur said he wanted Frank to be his bodyguard. They were like best, he considered him a best buddy. They did this, he talked about all this. And the fact that Tupac Shakur got shot on his watch, I have no doubt. Right in front of him. Yeah, I have no doubt affected him. I could put out names and try to get out of you Okay. who you believe killed Tupac Shakur, but you are adamant that you do not want to say who killed Tupac Shakur, just I, that you I, know who did. I am adamant I'm not going to say, and if you throw names out, I'm probably going to say maybe. So you may get a lot of maybes. I don't know. It just depends on who you throw out. Well, I mean, throughout the years, and I've been really fascinated by how much more, how many more names, because back 25 years ago, there were just a very few names on the list that I recall. And you can correct me as if I'm wrong. Suge Knight was one. People would stop me on the streets and say, Suge Knight is behind this. And I asked him about that. When I asked him about that, he pointed to 
the affidavit, the search warrant affidavit that I uncovered that pointed to Orlando Anderson. And then the only other possibility back then, as far as I recall, was Puff Daddy might have had something to do with it because East Coast, West Coast, or Biggie, you know, that the whole East Coast, West Coast thing, or the Bloods and Crips thing. So of all those names and entities I've named, does the person that you believe kill Tupac fall into any of those categories or identities? I'll throw out that he is involvement in a gang in California. The person who killed Tupac yeah. was involved in a I gang mean, in California. There are a lot of gang members in California affiliated with this thing. So, but I, Suge Knight, Biggie, and Puffy, I say no. I'll tell you no. They are not the name. But I, and I will say, in general, gang-related person. Okay. And when we say gang-related person, of the names that I just brought up, have to ask Orlando Anderson. Maybe. Was it Orlando Anderson? Maybe. <laughs> Was it Keefe D? Maybe. Was it DeAndre Smith? Maybe. He was in the car, allegedly, according to Keefe D. The fact that they have been in the mix early on, why not say who it is? Because in my mind, Back then, I was not able to submit the case. I did not have the facts. And when I say facts, hard facts, to say who did it. My thought is, why are you? Why do you want to smear the name of someone? And I'm not saying they're a good person for doing what they did, but why would you want to smear the name of someone and then not, who knows, maybe... Five years from now, somebody does something and proves me wrong, proves Greg Kading wrong, proves Russ Poole's view of it, or whoever. Uh, again, I'll throw out Richard Jewell. He's the classic example because his name got thrown out quick, and then it came back to haunt people. I'm not one to want to throw out a name and then potentially something go south on me. I don't think that's Others going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen, but never say never. Others have done so. Others have thrown and that's fine. It makes them feel good. I'm I'm I told you before, I'm happy for them. If it makes them feel good, that that's their business. I have no qualms about that. That's uh that's their business and so be it. That's just not mine. And of course you've heard this, we've discussed it, I've seen it discussed quite a bit, that the reason you really didn't want to take this to the finish line, it was because it was a black victim. That's nonsense. I, I can't give you a number, but of all the cases I worked, how many of them were black victims? A lot. A, a whole lot. Now... Again, to ask about 
prosecution, if you're that convinced, wouldn't a jury of peers be convinced as well based on the information that you no. were able to investigate? No. I've, had, I've been through enough jury trials that I know what you need to give to a jury. You know, I've, I've, we've prosecuted cases, we've gone in with things, and it's just not there. I mean, uh, I've got other murder cases where I thought we had plenty to go to a jury on, and the DA's office said no. And it had a lot more than, I mean, I'll say 90% more than we've got right now, or I had back then. I shouldn't say we because I have no idea what's in there now, what's going on. Understood. Based on our discussions, I have a strong feeling about who you believe did it. I'm sure that a lot of people have a strong feeling on who I believe did it. You aren't going to hear it from my lips, though. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add about it? And... Just the feeling that this is the first time you've ever said this. No, because again, if that's a revelation, so be it. But It is. You know, that's just the way it is. I just don't think throwing a person's name out until I, can, I could present it in a way to where you could go to court and send someone to prison, or to publicly say beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it. And I don't think anybody, you know, I guess reasonable doubt is a uh, an opinion again, because I've seen cases where I thought we had beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury didn't see it that way. So, so you're walking in, not even at that point. Yeah, I, I, I already know that. I mean, of all the cases I've ever had, uh, I can't really go over, you know, I'd have to look and see all the murder cases where I would rate this one as far as the type of evidence that's available, circumstantial and, and hearsay, because I know I've got a case or two where we had a victim, and we were pretty convinced who did it, but he didn't have that hard facts. Like, I can think of one right now up on Mount Charleston. Mike could remember it. Your partner. We're, yeah, we're convinced of who did it. Can't prove it. Can't prove it. But it's got to be different when it's such a... It's a case that's everywhere. Oh, yeah, this thing has been all over the place. And, well, quite obviously, because look at the subject matter that's been put out by how many different people, you know. And, uh, you know, everybody has their own idea of how they want to do stuff and what they are looking to gain by it. So... And I'm sure there's people I've worked with that are gathering stuff for stories to maybe sell at some time in their life. You know, 
you, some people do that. They want, they want, they want to be famous or be a folk hero or whatever the heck they want to be. And then I'm not talking about people that just write books. Like for cops, everybody knows Joseph Wambaugh. You know, he was an LAPD officer. I interviewed him once. Yeah, he's he's written some great books. I'm sure he's used some material out of his career for some of them books. Fictionalized. You know, know, fictionalized. And and made a lot of money out of it. And that's great. I wish I were that intellectual to write books, but I'm not. And, you know, I probably, I'm not really interested in doing such a thing. So... Some people are, and and that's kind of their motivation. And in terms of naysayers, some people might say, well, now you're talking, but it's after all these other folks have talked, Compton, LAPD, and you say? I'm happy for them. I'll say it again. I'm happy for them. It makes, and them feel, those... and it, makes them, it makes them feel good because, one, I have nothing to gain by saying this. Uh, I didn't have anything to gain by saying it before. And truly, I've never had a person such as you that I can think of. I'm trying to think if Frank ever asked, if Frank even asked me specifically. Because it's not anything I'd have volunteered to him because I also knew Frank was doing books and stories. And if, if I had to come on an interview with him and said that, oh my goodness gracious, uh, you'd have seen that in print probably that night, you know? Well, I have a feeling this was gonna be in print. Well, I don't know, but yeah, I, know I've, I know I've lied to some people and I don't How know so? that they were necessarily media. I've had I've talked to countless law enforcement people that had no relation to this and friends. And I've I've said, yeah, I know who did it, but I'm not telling you. And I've said that long before we just sat down and did this, the years ago. But. You weren't lying if you said you knew who did it. Well, yeah, that's true. You know, I have lied to other people that have asked me that I don't know. Because I've had a lot of people that I don't know once they found out maybe my involvement says, do you know who did it? And I'll say no. Because why would I tell someone I don't know? So I don't trust them if I don't know them and say, I know who did it, because you don't think they're going to run off and go do something? Any law enforcement person I ever talked to and said I knew who did it was someone I knew real well, and I had no concern about them saying anything. I believe even the people that have got the case now know who did it. Based on your investigation well, way back whatever, when? And whatever they've got, too. Because I, I can't say based strictly on mine. I, like I said, it's been 20 years since I've been involved in it. 
they've had to have gotten some information in those 20 years. In fact, they know they have. And it still it, hasn't been and prosecuted. it still hasn't been submitted. Can I tell you why it hasn't been submitted? No, I do not know. I, I wouldn't be the person to ask, but I just know that if someone was able to, one, submit a case for a prosecution, they would have, I think they would have done it if they'd have had the information to do it. If they had the information to identify the person that did it, be they dead or alive, I think something would have been said somewhere, but it hasn't been said. So that's the other question. Is the person you believe killed Tupac Shakur dead or alive? Maybe. Maybe he's maybe dead, dead, maybe, 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 dead alive. maybe alive. I'm not going to get into that because... I also got the feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you've said you don't want to put somebody's name in them, you know, drag them through whatever by naming that person, be they dead or alive. I also have the feeling, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't want to say it because you don't want to impact the case should it go to trial. Well, it's not my case. Who am I to it's... tell the public? Because what if, and I don't know this, but what if the investigation has garnered some information that has completely proved me wrong? And I'm not, it, maybe since they have. Since you were on the case. Yeah, after, since I've been on the case. In the years. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know that. I have not talked to anybody related to this case since, oh my. Probably was before 2003. I mean, it's just not something I've talked to anybody. On. So other people have gotten the case. They've got other things going with it. The only way someone would talk to me about it is if something came up that was in our previous investigation that they may have needed some clarification on. Sure. And I know that there's been other information that the investigators that inherited the case got. That buttressed what your beliefs were that in terms of the suspect? I believe so. I believe so from talking. But again, it's not enough to push it over the top. Um, what do I have to do to convince you to tell me everything <laughs> instead of having to ask all these questions? Uh, should I write it on a piece of note paper and when I die, I leave a note to say, tell Lennon, give this to Lennon was his way, maybe? Will you? Maybe I put it in a bottle and bury it out in the backyard and... <laughs> Dig this. Yeah, yeah. So you'll never, you'll never say. You'll, I mean, will you go to the great beyond without saying? I would say if whoever has the case gets to that point that they've more than satisfied with whatever they've got to proceed or to say, you know, they've got the hard facts, but we can't prosecute it, then I'd, and if they asked me, I'd tell them, you know, before they told me anything and then leave it, leave it at that. But I'm not, I'm not, 
like you said, I'm not here to jeopardize whatever's still going on with that thing or to uh, taint the feelings of people or because wouldn't it be easy to just throw out a name? Well, apparently it is because a lot of people have been throwing names out. Uh, it would be super easy to do that, but why? Uh, what is, it doesn't, it's again, it's not productive for the case, so why do it? You're telling me that you definitively knew from your perspective who killed Tupac Shakur less than a year after you started the investigation, less than a year after his death. Were you the only person to feel that way? Uh during that time period, I would say there was a couple more people. I would say I know personally over the course of the overall investigation, I know of three other people that feel that all the information is very compelling as to who, as to who did it. Now, would you say that those other people who were as convinced as you are came to that conclusion based on the same evidence that you did? Was there one piece of evidence that was compelling or was it a collection of things? There was a whole bunch of things. You know, granted, it's a whole lot of hearsay, a whole lot of circumstantial evidence, but, and I believe I've said it before, there are plenty of homicide detectives that tell you they know who did it, but they just don't have enough to push it forward for, you know, to get the case pushed through for prosecution or whatever. I can guarantee you that. I mean, I think of a guy that I worked with in Las Vegas. Super, he's, he's sort of a legend in the office, Dave, Dave Hatch. He'd been a homicide detective forever, and he retired not long, a year or so after this day started. But I remember Dave he worked a lot of murder cases in his career, a lot, far more than I ever did. And he he had a lot of cases that he knew who did it, but you just didn't have enough to push it over the edge. What impact does it have that it's an infamous case? Well, obviously over the... 25 years, it's it's a big deal. Everybody is, in my opinion, more concerned about naming who did it than seeing this case go to the point where you can convict them if that's possible, or you have the evidence that's beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it. And I think it puts a lot of pressure on it. I, I can tell you from the very beginning, there was a lot of pressure on this case. Ever, you know, Tupac Shakur. Once it happened, and once we know who he is, you realize uh, he's he's a big deal to a lot of people, and they want to know who who shot him, who killed him. And well, as, as I've said before, I've had cases where the pressure to name someone can hinder the investigation by forcing uh, you to identify someone before you've got all your witnesses or stuff identifying them. And the last Did thing- Did that happen? You, 
Did that well, happen no, in this case? No, because we never had a person identify anybody by name or through photo lineup. It never happened. Yet you feel secure in knowing who killed Tupac. Oh, yeah. I think, like I said, there is a, a boatload of information on this thing. But you you need to be able to put it to the point where you can prove it. And that's the big question mark here. Can Can it be proven based on the information we have? And... I mean, some people will say, well, you got all this circumstantial evidence and all this hearsay, but you don't go into court with just hearsay evidence. Was it a, a help or a hindrance that your victim was so well known? Did it give you more tips? Would you perhaps have gone further in a drive-by shooting of somebody that was not as well known as Tupac Shakur? I don't. I don't see that it generated that many more tips because I guess in the big scheme of things, it didn't. People were so reluctant to give factual information. You had a whole lot of nonsense come out, which I blame more to his notoriety than, than if it was just a what you would call a regular drive-by shooting where no one really knew anybody. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people, because of who it is, was motivated to get their name into it as to solve it, so to speak, to be able to say who did it. And I thought, well, that's great because they don't have any direct involvement in the case as far as having to get it to court. How, how easy it is it to stand up and say, so-and-so did something. As long as you aren't the one that's got to prove it in court, well, that that's just the way it is. I'm the one that at the time had to try and prove it in court, and it wasn't there. And they aren't what they other people that may have gotten themselves involved in this had to say. Again, was all based on hearsay. And to bring up something that I'd asked previously, in just a little bit of a different way, if you believe that you knew who killed Tupac, if you're Colleagues, more than one. How many would you say? Six, five. Total? Well, I can just say myself and three that I know for absolute certainty. If they believed it as well, perhaps a jury of twelve would have believed what you all knew as well. Well, first of all, for me to get up on the stand and testify to stuff, I have to testify to facts. Hearsay isn't going to fly. First of all, the attorneys aren't going to let it. The judge isn't going to allow it. So when, I, as a, when a policeman's up testifying, he's testifying to facts that he has or she has to present to a jury. That says, the first time I say Joe Smith said this, a defense attorney is going to object. Joe Smith needs to stand up here and say, this is what they heard, or this is what they know. So I will ask one more time, who killed Tupac Shakur? 
I just am reluctant to say anything because one, it's not my case anymore. I'm not going to interfere with whatever investigation is ongoing. If they have gathered enough information since my involvement to prove this, I would think they would have by now. Uh, and I am in no way going to be the one to pressure them to do anything that they aren't comfortable with doing right now. And you believe that would be the result if you were to state who you believe it was? I think if I state who it is, we're just going to get more of the drama that's going on right now. We've got enough people stating who did what or what their beliefs are. I says, why is my saying who did it going to add to that? Is it really productive? I don't think it is in the investigation. As far as I'm concerned, all these other people can say what they want. They have motivation to do it, so so be it. And the reason you have responded to me is because I asked. Well, yeah, you're the. <laughs> I didn't seek you out to do this. I haven't sought anybody out to do this stuff, and because I'm sure there's going to be something come out of it, you know that I would hope something positive would come out of it, but I'm fairly certain there'll be a lot of negative come out of it because that's just the world we live in today. People have their views and and I may present something that counters what they have been presenting. And I know from past experience that when you do that, you piss people off. So, And the positive you think potentially that could come out of this? Well, who knows? Maybe there's someone out there. I mean, it's the problem is it's 25 years. If there was someone that we never had contact with that suddenly comes forward with information, it's great, but I can tell you there's going to be a challenge involved with it because it's 25 years later. I could I could go into a uh, some information like I said, I've learned a so much information about what's happened since my involvement from talking to you, my head spins. And mine too. Yeah, this this apparent confession that someone has presented on its face sounds like a wonderful thing, but when I look at it from different perspectives, I see a lot of question marks come up. And well, my questions are one, and I don't know this for a fact because everything I hear is basically hearsay from what other people have said. You've got other law enforcement officers may or may not have concealed information regarding this case from Las Vegas Metro homicide detectives to obstruct their investigation. If If you listen to what some of the information that's come out. They didn't want to tell Las Vegas about things or they had some information and they didn't forward it on. If that's a fact, they're obstructing the investigation. And those are law enforcement officers. That's disturbing to me. Second, the confession that comes out is a wonderful thing in the sense that, well, this person has confessed to being a co-conspirator to murder, if you listen to it. That's exactly what he's done. 
Now, I, from the way I understand it, the deal that was struck by him was through an out-of-state agency on another drug, another case, a drug case of some sort. What I haven't heard is that a proffer was made by the Clark County District Attorney's Office to say, you tell us what happened, we will make a deal with you. I haven't heard that yet. So that confession was not made with an agreement by the people that would prosecute him. So there's, there's a question mark. And then, by the guy's own words, he puts himself in the car in the front passenger seat. Well, yeah, well, we're talking about Keefe D. So by his own words, and if you put any credibility to some of our witnesses, the shooter fired by sticking his arm out the driver's door window. Well, that's either the driver or the guy in the front passenger seat. Well, who just admitted to being in the front passenger in the front seat? The guy who's giving the information. And ironically, now he's the only one that's alive out of everybody that he names as being in that car. I don't I think there was someone still alive when he first made the confession. But now it's just, he's the Lone Ranger in there. But beyond Keefe D, let's say somebody's listening to this podcast and mm-hmm. says, you know, I know what happened 25 years ago. I was afraid to say so. Then my husband died, my girlfriend died, my boyfriend died, my baby daddy died, whatever. And now I feel free to go forward. Sure. What type of witness is necessary? Somebody who was in the car, somebody who heard something from somebody who was in that Cadillac? What's the nature of what you would need? Ideally, you'd want someone who was actually there. I mean, you may have stories from two or three different people. You know. Hearsay again. People could say, well, you got two or three different people saying the same thing, and I understand that. But. Can you, you've got to be able to go in and say that there's no way these two or three people somehow got together with this story. Someone, same person told them the story. You've got to be able to corroborate it. If there was a person that came forward today that says they saw this happen, they saw this person shooting the gun and it can be corroborated, then by all means, I think it's going to go a long way towards the case. There, like I said, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence involved in this. There is not a whole lot of direct evidence that can be used. I mean, you've got one person saying something that says he was there, None of the other people that have said they were there that we have talked to have ever, they've never said Keefe D. Keefe D's name has never come up from anybody. And keep in mind again, since this has happened, there's been all kinds of photographs of people put out in the media, either newspapers or TV shows or whatever. And none of the witnesses that night 
have said with absolute certainty that that was one of the people. And I can tell you in the quite the obvious question that would come up down the road from an attorney would be, well, it's been so long and this guy's picture's been in the paper so many times or these people's pictures have been in the paper. Well, and I can tell you that the ones that wanted to look at photo lineups that we had as direct witnesses never could identify anybody. And, and we'll get I, into that. Yeah, and I can tell you there's a whole bunch of people that have since been published in the media that were in those photo lineups. So if I understand correctly, the only reason you have given me the answer, you know who killed Tupac Shakur, is because I asked. Yes. And you trusted me to give me a truthful answer. I've known you for 25 years. Like I said, when you came to our office to do your America's Most Wanted thing, and Mike especially, you met Mike. And Mike's your partner. You called him a curmudgeon for crime any sakes. Uh, Mike liked you. And, and you were a quote, I'll call you a media type at the time. Uh, and we weren't one. Yeah. And we weren't ones to talk to the media about much of anything. That's why we had supervisors. We let them do all that stuff, but we did it with you. I talked, like I said, I've been in touch with you off and on for the last 25 years. This is the first time you've actually gotten to this length. Twenty-five years after the murder of Tupac Shakur, no arrests have been made. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro detective Brent Becker about Tupac's murder, you have a few ways to reach out. And thanks to all of you, dear listeners, who've already contacted me. Use the hashtag TupacMurderPodcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast. You can type out your question, record audio or video, and send it in, and we'll get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via TupacMurder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com, as many of you have. I Want to Know Zizwe reporting Tupac's murder was his case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lena Nozizwe. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Special thanks to Joe Mayer and Annabelle Vidrio. You've been listening to Lennon Ozizue reporting Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next on Tupac's murder was his case. Someone else has been working the Tupac case for 10 years. It's, it's their case, and it really wasn't a whole lot of conversation and you know, if, if there was anything they needed from me, they knew where to find me when I was working. So, and I don't think 
since I've retired, I don't think anybody's contacted me from there for, about anything related to this. So when you look back, is there any one word you would use to describe that investigation that we're talking about 25 years later? I don't know that there's one thing because there were a lot of things that happened in that investigation that happened in a lot of investigations. You just get, you know, no cooperation on occasion from some people. I would say there was more mudslinging from other law enforcement agencies. You've been listening to Lennon Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case, an Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one.